This is Todd Lights, public address announcer for your Los Angeles Dodgers. And now, it's time for the Bleed Lows Podcast with your hosts Alonso and Juan. And Alicia Del Valle. With the baby face gimmick in the sky, Roger. Hello, friends, and welcome to another edition of the Bleed Lows Podcast. This week's podcast is presented by our partners at Bet Online. They continue to be the number one source for all of your betting needs and sports information. Find all of the latest odds, news, sports development, including this year's NBA Championship Finals, NHL Conference, well, Stanley Cup Finals now, Major League Baseball, and uh, the latest fighting news and even next season's early NFL futures. Head on over to their website, which you'll see on the screen if you're watching this, which is betonline.ag. Use your mobile device, sign up, and you will receive your 50% welcome bonus on your first deposit. It's that easy. All you have to do is use our promo code BELIEVE, which is B-L-E-A-V, the network that we're on, and you'll get that bonus and get into the action. Been online where the game starts. This week, stopping by the Carnesada is, uh, is is someone that I've been looking forward to talking to because baseball is about history, and we, we preserve the history as much as we can, but I'm also a history nut, and that, I don't know if it's good or bad, but my wife likes it, so that's all that matters. Uh, author uh, and historian for the Los Angeles Dodgers, Mark. Landrew. How are you doing, Mark? It's good to be with you guys. Thank you very much for the invitation. Of course. we it, There's there's a, a bunch of stuff that's upcoming that we wanted to talk about. And my generation, I'm in my mid-30s, uh, probably didn't get the chance to see this guy play. But in my opinion, the, the second best lefty that ever played the game at this uh, pitched in the game, Sandy Koufax, is about to get a statue. And uh, Jana Marie Smith talked to us about that. She uh, She kind of broke that with us a while back. And uh, and now my man is getting immortalized uh, in in the plaza, and let's just dive right into it. What, as far as the baseball historian, before we get into the Kofax thing, you 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 guys are are very you know there's presidential historians, there's uh, historians for like classic car clubs and stuff like that, and you guys just document stuff. But a lot of people just think it's just absorbing info and not kind of the preservation. What actually is a historian? Well, a lot of people wonder how to become team historian. And I start off by saying, don't hit the ball in Little League and you're well on your way to being a team historian. Then you pause for the laughter and you go, no, really. I was terrible in Little League. Six years, they had to see if my mother's check would cash, you know, before <laughs> before they let me play. And so we go through that and I just wasn't that good. But I always love the atmosphere. And the amazing thing is I'm coming up on 50 years of my first Dodger game uh, July 15, 1972. I still can remember it like it was yesterday. And my parents said it was just like a duck to water as far as the interest that I always had. It wasn't just the standings. It was the music. It was score, It was keeping score. It was the history and everything that went into that. And so uh, team historian title didn't exist before I received it. I joined the Dodgers. This is my 29th year. So I came along in 1994. I'd been a beat writer for the Pasadena Star News. 2002, Derek Hall, who's now in charge of the Diamondbacks, said, look, we've had two ownership changes. We don't necessarily know what you're talking about, but you do know what you're talking about. Can we give you every miscellaneous phone call, every 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 crazy request, and we'll, we'll just let you be in charge of what's in the rearview mirror? How does that sound to you? I said, absolutely. That's the most one. And it's been the most wonderful position in the world because it could be something that happened maybe a month ago, like Kershaw's strikeout record, like we're talking about now, the Sandy Colfax statue. If you want to go back to Brooklyn and Brickyard Kennedy or anything like that, 
there's 131 years in the rearview mirror. And so it's something that I love every day. And really, nothing's really changed. I just sort of feel like a big kid in terms of this is the way my brain was when I was seven years old. I was always interested in the atmosphere, in Dodger history and Dodger baseball. And so I'm just so blessed. There are thousands and hundreds of thousands of, quote, team historians out there. I'm just the lucky one with a business card. <laughs> oh, and, and you know what? I mean, it would also, as my wife would say, would justify hoarding because I just wouldn't get rid of any of the stuff that I have behind me if I was a historian. And there's one thing that I read about that uh, that you have that you still apparently have is you have a hat that you've held on to, I believe, for 50 years, if I'm not mistaken, at this point. Just imagine the worst kid in Little League. And, and I <laughs> trust me. When they hand you a championship ring and it looks like a turtle gave up its life to be covered with diamonds <laughs> and you're looking at this thing and you're like, do I make it a hood ornament on my car or a doorstop? And you're just thinking, how on earth does this happen? You know, that's, that, that it's, it's just incredible. But the other thing that I had with me that day when they had the ring presentation, I used to be in the left field pavilion and I would look in the bullpen and it was kind of like an ant farm in this little secret world that nobody else knew about. You could see the relief pitchers warm up. You could see everything that went on there and I'd hang over the railing and I had my hat from the very first game. And so you've got this, this huge, huge diamond ring and you've got this hat from nearly 50 years ago. And you're just thinking, how on earth is this possible? It's uh, I wanted to have that hat as a reminder of how it all began. No, fair. And, and I mean, that that's the beauty of baseball, right? It all starts in the infancy of every, you know, for the most part, everyone as a kid discovers the game and then you're exposed to this beautiful game, which again, they value everyone in baseball talks about the history of the game. No matter if you're a Red Sox fan, Yankees fan, and you're, as you mentioned, even a Diamondbacks fan, everyone talks about the history of the game and the lore that comes with it. But, to be able to kind of put it all together and then kind of have that full circle moment when you got your world series ring as an employee of, as a Dodger, I'm sorry, that's, you can't write that any better. No, it was, it was amazing. There, there, there've been so many things like that happen. And just an example, uh, I listened to Scully as a kid and I used to joke with him. The reason, you know, I used to hang on your every word now look at me and he's like, Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. And, <laughs> Just imagine all these years later, when it comes time for him to retire, it's 2016. And I thought, okay, if we're going to pose with him in the press box for a last photo, I've got to have some sort of some sort of prop, something that's going to break the monotony. Otherwise, I'm going to fall to my knees, grab his leg and start crying, saying, don't go, don't go. And so his first team that he followed, 1936 New York Giants. Well, it turned out the New York Giants wore light blue. And so I brought a hat. And he says, and so when we're going to take the photo, he's like, why is it blue? He didn't know that his boyhood team from 36 wore light blue. And the reason for that, obviously, if you're reading in the black and white newspapers, you're not necessarily going to know that. So then the great thing was he turns to his wife and says, Sandy, let's put this in a safe place. And I was just thrilled because I did not give him the hat. So as everybody is like <laughs> fawning all over going, oh, we love you and this and that. I'm saying, he stole my hat. <laughs> and I loved it because it was like, you know, if you want my kidney, if you want me to jump off the reserve level, that's fine. I'll do that too. But it was a suddenly a funny a storyline as far as he steals my hat, just like Putin in the Super Bowl ring. Now, fast <laughs> forward to the following week. It's the last day in San Francisco, 80 years to the day when he first knew what baseball was when he's walking home from school and he'd see the Giants and the Yankees box score 
in the window. And so 80 years to the day, would you believe during the telecast, he holds up that cap, tells the story and gives me credit for that story. And I'm thinking, okay, you're seven years old. You're, you're, you've got this sing to me alfalfa. Here we are at Dodger stadium. You know, I'm, I'm, it's, it's a, it's a recording. No one's ever going to hear because it's uh uh, it's a pretty high voice. I do commercials, play by play, scores from around the league. Even though as a seven-year-old, I should have known better. There are no scores from around the league when you replicate the 74 World Series. But just to have that type of moment, things like that happen all the time. And I've given up long ago saying, I can't believe this because it's 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 just something every day. And, and I'm just so blessed. But the thing is, I can't enjoy it in a vacuum. It's the other people, the other employees, the former players, everybody's stories. It brings it all together. And, and that's the thing that's the most enjoyable. If you're a team historian, you don't want to be like, oh, ask me trivia. Ask me this. And you don't you don't want that. You right. want to turn it around and absorb what everybody else has, because it's just it's just wonderful for be, be able to talk about and relive. Well, and speaking of stories, like I mentioned, my generation, you know, I'm in my mid-30s. They didn't really get to experience the Sandy Koufax because, well, we're in our mid-30s. What can, for, for the younger generation that didn't get to see a guy like Sandy Koufax play, what's the best way that you can kind of summarize the importance of Sandy Koufax to the game? Well, thank you for asking about my generation because <laughs> I, I was – I was six when Sandy pitched his perfect game. Six months old, I was born <laughs> in 1965. And so, you know, it's just like Billy Graham as far as a lot of it's hearsay, because if you don't have firsthand knowledge, all you can do is go by the teammates. You can go by on YouTube. There's some wonderful pick, uh, shots of him, uh, full games from the 1965 World Series. But I think anybody really wanting to know the essence of Colfax needs to read Jane Levy's book, a lefty's legacy, because just imagine this raw prospect, 19 years old, he has to make his major league debut with the soon-to-be world champion Brooklyn Dodgers in 1955. Because of his bonus contract, he didn't have the luxury of learning in the minor leagues. Drysdale was able to go down to Bakersfield and Montreal, but Colfax had to start off right off the bat. And so he doesn't really develop as a pitcher until 1961 spring training everything changes it's a b game they're in orlando there's no coaches there's no manager there's no trainer and ed palmquist a pitcher is hung over and he misses the flight so there's only two pitchers and gil hodges the interim manager says sandy you got to pitch seven innings he walks the bases loaded in the first inning norm sherry the catcher comes out and says look we're going to be here all day just let him hit it ease up Stop trying to throw the ball so hard. He goes back behind the plate. Sandy strikes out the side. Norm Sherry can't believe it. By him mentally relaxing, he was able to follow through, and suddenly he's the greatest pitcher of his generation. Four no-hitters, including a perfect game. 1963, he had 11 shutouts, 382 strikeouts. Uh, he won the Cy Young Award three times in an era when they only gave the award one uh, for the two leagues. And so – he was just so dominating, but then he was kind of like a candle to the, the flame, moth to the flame, because he burned out by by age 30. He had arthritis, and it was such a physical toll on him. He decided he wanted to retire one year early, then one year too late. He still wanted to have the use of his, uh, you know, of his of his body. So just imagine age 30, 27 wins during the regular season in 1966. 
and he walks away from the game on top. We're here with with Mark Langell, who exposed the fact that Vince Scully is a kleptomaniac. So that's why you have to listen <laughs> to the Bleed Lows podcast, because that's where you're going to get this information. Where else would you find out that Vince Scully is a kleptomaniac? <laughs> Mark, I, I, you know, the, the so the trophy, I mean, the trophy, the statue is going to be unveiled on June 18th. And, you know, the the, I, the fact, you know, the Yankees have Monument Park. I mean, a lot of stadiums now have statues of players. Down in Petco, uh, the show pods have a Tony Quinn statue. You know, th- th- these things are important because it keeps the memory of that player alive. Now, whose responsibility is that, Mark? Because as the years continue to progress, we, we're not going to have people anymore that have seen Sandy Koufax. I mean, we were lucky. We had Vin Scully. Vin Scully could sit here and talk to us about these players because Vin saw it. But sooner or later, we're going to start losing those people that have actually seen this guy. Now everybody that talks about Babe Ruth, well, nobody saw Babe Ruth. Now it's those stories. So as a historian, how do we prevent the stories from becoming myths and getting exaggerated. And it's just like, wait, he never really did that. (laughs) The wonderful thing about Dodger history is there is an abundance from which to choose. Gil Hodges being the 11th retired number. And then we have the two microphones for Vin and Jaime. And the wonderful thing is just doing the research in terms of going back and analyze those other retired numbers. You've got if you wanted to you know, start shopping for statues, number one, Pee Wee Reese, number two, Lasorda, number four, Duke Snyder. Then you've got Jim Gilliam, who never gets any attention. He's the one retired number that's not a Hall of Famer, but he was with the organization for 40 years. Then you've got 20, Don Sutton. Then you've got Don, you've got Colfax, 32. You've got Campy, 39. You've got Jackie, 42. You've got Drysdale, 53. And so there are so many choices. And the wonderful thing about the stadium I'm 57 years old. I'm three years younger than the stadium. And I wish I could age as gracefully as Dodger Stadium because when does a ballpark get two $100 million facelifts? And anybody that was a fan 20 years ago, you know, the, the bottom of the left field or right field pavilion had the all the ambiance of the bottom of a high school football bleacher in terms of, mm-hmm. you know, decor. And so Janet Marie Smith, our vice president of stadium development, she is just magic with the pixie dust and the cash in terms of being able to afford, being able to turn this into a living, breathing museum. And think about the crowd at Dodger Stadium now. You've got part of the crowd, they'll get there and they'll go, this is the ballpark I grew up in, 1962. Look at all the old familiar places. It still looks the very same. And then you've got other people going, how cool is this? An outdoor bar in the bleachers. You've got stand-up tables. You've got the bullpen overlook. You've got this area in center field that reminds you of Sleeping Beauty's Castle at Disneyland in terms (laughs) of people just being able to walk around and parents with their kids. You don't have to just sit there in the seats anymore. You can just have a party for four or five hours and just run around and talk to your friends. But both sides are very happy because you're given each side what they want. And that's the amazing thing about the stadium. It's not just for a particular crowd. You know, going out in the outfield, the center field area um, on a Friday night and just people are just happy to stand there. There's enough screens everywhere to watch the TV, but you don't have to sit there and be quiet. If you're at the Hollywood Bowl, you can't talk for four hours. If you're in a movie theater and other things like this, if you want to watch the game, that's fine. If you want to circulate, that's fine. If you want a kid, you want to play, 
you want to have some uh, different drinks, you want to have some different eating experiences, you go run around and look at the historical landmarks, there really is something to do for everyone as opposed to 10 years ago, where yes, it was a charming ballpark, but that was it. There wasn't anything as far as Instagram sites, places for social media, and places for fun. It's, it's totally changed. It's still the same ballpark, but it sure doesn't feel like the third oldest ballpark in the major leagues. You know, it's interesting because I, I think in hindsight, if you look at it, I think Jackie Robinson being the first statue is kind of a no-brainer. You, you kind of had to go with Jackie Robinson, right? Now we have our second statue, which is Koufax. Now, if you believe it, you know, Koufax is famously a private person. And it's, to me, it sounds like he would absolutely hate the idea of a statue of him being placed at Dodger Stadium. But it, that's how important he is to the Dodgers. You know, in the end, if you identify one player that you could sit there and say, how do you dis to represent the Dodgers? I'm sure a lot of people will say Sandy Koufax. Have you had interaction with Sandy? Do we know how he really feels about this statue going up? I haven't had interaction with Sandy about the statue itself, but I've had interaction with Sandy before. Sandy is a wonderful person. And as you say, he's private, but he just wants to lead a normal life. Everybody wants to turn back the time clock. Tell me about the perfect game. Tell me about the 15 strikeouts in game one of the 63 World Series. Tell me about two and two to Harvey Keene, one strike away. Sandy into his windup. Here's the pitch. He doesn't want to be caught in that time capsule and having to relive and relive. And to me, he's kind of like Eddie Murray, because when Eddie Murray was with the Dodgers, I think he got a bum rap from the reporters because Eddie didn't really like to give that many interviews. And it turned out that he didn't like to brag. He wasn't the type to talk about himself. And Sandy isn't that type either in terms of it was all about the team and it was all about winning and doing the best you could. And so Sandy's going to be in an awkward position if somebody asks him, tell me how great you were. Tell me that this and that. It's not something that's, you know, comfortable for him. And I remember at John Roseborough's funeral, Maury Wills calls me up to the front of the church. Mark, Mark, come here. And all of a sudden he turns and he goes, have you met Sandy Colfax? And Sandy looked at me like I was going to get my Bible signed. And I said, Sandy, I'm with the Dodgers and I try to leave you alone because I know nobody else does. And he breaks into a big smile and he says, thanks. I appreciate that. And one of Sandy's reps uh, told me last year and, and he's told me you know, in the past, hey, stop by the suite. Say hi to Sandy. And I'm laughing to myself going, it's not going to make his day if I stop by the suite. <laughs> You know, you know, if he needs something, that's fine. But he's just a he's just a wonderful person. But he is very, very humble. He is a very down to earth person. And he he is just when you think about what he did, uh, it's just amazing. But he will be the last person to tell you how great he was, because for him, it was it was all about the team. That was it. Go ahead, Alicia. I, I want to continue about Sandy because he is to us on the outside, just someone like me, just a fan, um, very private. And there's, aside from the book, even when he speaks, it's always about other players, right? What is currently Sandy's role with the Dodgers? And um, well, let's start with that. What What is Sandy's role with the Dodgers, officially or unofficially? 
like Sandy, a day to day when Sandy arrives at the ballpark. <laughs> Sandy's role is pretty much whatever he wants. He's an ambassador. <laughs> and so if there's a really big event, I mean, just think about 2016, you know, Sandy may not be the type that wants to, you know, do interviews or have the spotlight, but he sure as heck took center stage when it was time to honor Vin Scully on the field and gave a wonderful speech and, and hugged Vinny and everything like that. Um, so he's, he's around, he's just not the type, Hey, look at me. I'm Sandy Colfax. He's, um, has wonderful friendships behind the scenes, uh, has a great relationship with Kershaw. Um, Dave Wallace, the former pitching coach, he's got people and former, uh, traveling secretary who's since passed Billy Delory. They were such close friends, but it was just sort of on the side. It was just Sandy just wasn't one for the spotlight because he knows what happens if Sandy goes into a crowd as far as suddenly it's, it's chaos for the autograph and things like that. And uh, it, I, I'm sure it's not that he wouldn't want to sign, but it's just one of those things that's, you know, if you could have controlled mayhem as opposed to just this tornado coming at him uh, behind the scenes, he's just as, as, as down to earth and nice as could be. I was just curious if he's actually working with the pitchers or has any say so with scouting or because he is Sandy freaking Koufax, you know, that's all just be nosy. And, you know, um, Mark, you've met my parents. Um, I should tell the fellas that Mark and I have watched many a sunrise together in Dodger stadium while cameras were rolling. But I mean, we have a lot of, uh, a lot of history ourselves and i'm always amazed at your memory and the things you remember you remembered my mother's birthday for goodness sake so that's very sweet i bring that up because you know how baseball is so important to my family with like so many families across the world dodgers are a global brand um my dad is not a jersey wearing man you know there's that debate like should grown men wear jerseys or not i'm not going to get into that i don't want anyone to come at me however <laughs> My father owns one jersey, and it is Sandy Koufax because he is Sandy Koufax. So I wanted to get into a little bit of history about how important the legacy of Koufax. I I align it with. I mean, I, I wasn't able to watch Koufax, but Fernando Valenzuela, I remember, and I was a little girl. Was it kind of um, the the same? Uh, I don't want to align them but the importance of having somebody like that that will mobilize a whole generation do you remember where you were when you watched fernando is am i wrong in comparing oh, no. that or oh no you you alicia you you are dead on correct because the the emotion that those two pitchers stirred from the fans you know there are grown men in their 70s and 80s that still practically weep when they're talking not only what Colfax meant, but also uh, the first game of the 1965 World Series, Sandy being Jewish, sat out the opener against the Twins because of Yom Kippur. And once he did that, it was just uh, put him on a total different realm in terms of what he meant to the Jewish community. But then again, he did that personally because that's what he thought he should do. He doesn't want to necessarily... Uh, have to speak about that all the time. It was just a personal decision. It was just something very high profile. And Fernando is exactly the same in terms of trying to get him. And I've given up in terms of, you know, you can ask Fernando certain things, but I've asked him, I'm like, Fernando, 1981, you've got the opening day, you've got your eight and oh, you've got the five shutouts in your first eight starts. 
at any time, is any of this, are you nervous at all? And he'll just give me that Harpo marks. You know, it, it drives you crazy and, and or a little wink or something like that. And I think Sandy, Wes Parker told me that Sandy was such a perfectionist. And, you know, Drysdale was the type that could be the life of the party. He could throw at your head and then invite you out to dinner that night. Drysdale was the type guy that, you know, the Giants could accuse him of throwing a spitball yet in 1968 after he had that shutout streak, Herman Franks and the Giants actually got together with Drysdale and did a Vitalis ad. You know, they're big, big rivals. And yet, you know, Drysdale had that charm to be able to, you know, get along with opponents. Sandy was more the, the, he would, you know, Dick Trzuski was his roommate, nothing high profile. Normally he would have his meals room service because he just, you know, didn't want to have to go out in public and be the center of attention. But Wes had said that he was this perfectionist. And just imagine when everything is going right for you, Sandy Colfax, and you've got that potential. Once you hit your stride around 1962, where every single game could be a no-hitter, where you know what it's like to strike out 18 batters in the game, where you know what it's like to dominate, now just imagine the pressure having to, at least in your own mind, try to do that every single game trying to get that it's just i'm sure it's just like a home run hitter who may hit 40 or 50 homers and then you know you have that potential and then trying to unlock it again and it's the same thing with sandy i'm sure as far as knowing that potential knowing once he hit a stride that he could be perfect every night but you can't be perfect every night and so i'm sure that was the struggle too you know sandy having to remind himself hey just do your best you can't be perfect all the time i like that i like that well we can go on and on about um, Fernando, but I feel like I should keep it with Sandy for now, but we're going to come back to Fernando. Um, <laughs> I, because I, I am very excited. I'm hoping to be there. Um, I'm hoping uh, rather that I could grab, um, I should probably not talk about the, the giveaway for Sandy just yet. What, let's talk about you being a historian. I am a homer for Dodger Stadium. I love that. I call it a cathedral of baseball, not just a ballpark. I've been lucky enough to see the Dodgers play in multiple ballparks. I mean, you, the Dodgers travel well. You know that more than anybody. But do you ever go to other ballparks? And if so, is there one comparable to majestic Dodgers Stadium? See how I talk? And do you hang out with other historians from other teams? Like, is that a thing? Like, <laughs> we, we, we have a Zoom call. There's some people that are like archivists <laughs> and museum directors, but it's definitely not something you hang out with because <laughs> they're not, I mean, they may talk about storage space and things like that, but um, the people you really want to hang out with are the ones that have the stories or the ones that um, I'll give you a great example. There was a pitcher on the 1974 team named Greg Shanahan, a relief pitcher. Okay, I got an email yesterday from his, his son, who was a principal in Eureka. And he said, hey, my dad's in this newsletter. Would you like us to send a copy? I said, absolutely. And so when I sent him the email, I knew that YouTube had put out some 1973 broadcasts of old Dodger games. And so I looked up and I found his third major league appearance at Cincinnati when he replaces Claude Osteen in the second inning. So I sent him the link. And really the nicest thing was getting an email maybe about a half hour, hour later saying, you're not going to believe this. We've never heard this before. Dad has talked about this bases loaded balk for 50 years. And for us to be able to hear Jerry Doggett describe it, 
that is really the fun part to be able to know that there's something out there that somebody could enjoy and to put the pieces together. Irene Hodges, Gil Hodges' daughter, had not really heard her father's voice in a very, very long time. And in our emails, when, when we're planning this, I had found a 1958 recording of Gil, maybe seven minutes long, talking about the importance to him of religion and how it plays in his career. And I, and I sent it to Irene. She said she got the chills listening to her father's voice after all this time. And this is the powerful emotion that you're dealing with. As far as the wins and losses and stats, that, you know, that, that comes and goes. And the war and the whip and everything like that, all the acronyms and the sabermedics and everything like that. The most important thing to me are, are the feelings and the memories and why you can get teared up looking at a box score from 42 years ago, or you can still remember where you were when Doug Rao was four outs away in 1979 pitching a no-hitter against the Expos, or what you said, Alicia, about Fernando. I was there, reserve level, watching Fernando's first start. And if you were there, it's just something you never forget. You're In the beginning, it's who is this guy? And by four o'clock, you're like, can you believe it? And then six, you know, six weeks later, it's the hottest ticket in town. And my favorite part of Fernando mania was when one of the reporters asked, Fernando, do you think you'll ever lose a game? And Jaime Harin, with the smooth translation, says, Fernando said it would be difficult, dramatic pause, but not impossible. <laughs> So that's the stuff that I love as far as the emotion that people have. Um, that's that's the important. You never say, hey, remember when so-and-so got 47 doubles or remember when he hit 313? It's always a foul ball. It's my first souvenir, my first scrapbook, a first date, the first time you ever went there. I can't believe that happened. That's the most important thing. And that's why the stadium is just this living, breathing quilt that just gets bigger and bigger. It's added with everybody's memories throughout the year. I love that. I'm getting sentimental. I really do. <laughs> There's so many firsts and remembers with Dodgers Stadium. I'm sure with the Fallas too. So thank you for taking us down there. Um, what do you think, guys? Alanto, you want to ask? Before yeah. I I, I, so he, he keeps saying something that sticks out to me. It's about Koufax being such a perfectionist. And it's crazy because Kershaw for a long time was also such a perfectionist. And and I, and I mean, you know this better than anyone, Mark. Uh, history has a way of repeating itself, right? And with Koufax, obviously, was considered the greatest lefty of his generation. Kershaw is as well. And it's crazy because it, both of them happen to be Dodgers. And it looks like Clayton hopefully finished his career as a Dodger as well. But I'm kind of curious. You mentioned that they, they're close. They have a good relationship. We had John Suhu on a while ago, who's another kind of historian of sorts who documents everything in, in, in picture form who shared a, a picture of Kershaw and Koufax and told us the story about that down in the tunnel. Uh, for you, when you kind of go back and and look that stuff up, you know, as far as discussing, hey, Koufax, Kershaw have a dope relationship. They're both perfectionists, all that sort of stuff. You were talking about pinching yourself. How weird is it when all that cyclicism, if you will, kind of tends to repeat itself over and over again as a historian? Well, it's wonderful because, you know, they both happen to be left-handed. They both happen to make their debuts around age 19. And the difference is, you know, Sandy had the height, but he didn't have the luxury of the minor league development. And Clayton at least had, you know, a year and a half in the minor leagues before he finally got called up. And somebody asked me about the early days of, of Kershaw, and I remember taking him to the major league camp for the first time in 2008, and Suhu had to take his mugshot. 
and we're driving along. And, and you know, the last thing you want to do is put pressure on either a prospect or, um, you know, say anything that it's really going to make them uncomfortable. And so I said, um, you know, they're really trying to make, make Colfax out of you. He told me three words that once he told me the three words, I thought to myself, I do not need to worry about Clayton Kershaw. And those three words were, people mean well. And that was just wise beyond his years for him to say something like that. And, you know, it's not fair to compare everything as far as Kershaw and Colfax and the statistics, because Sandy pitched in an era where 300 innings, there was no pitch counts. You know, he had like 27 complete games one year. And it's important, and I think Kershaw knows this, just to be the best pitcher that he can be. Yes, there's a lot of comparisons, but he doesn't need to worry about, quote, topping Colfax. And I think the most the, the great thing about Kershaw and seeing his development, it's really fun to be able to see somebody come out of high school and grow up before your very eyes. And all the little milestones along the way, but then uh, he was already with Ellen, but to see the family develop and the kids come along. And that's the nice part, when he can play with the kids in the outfield and He's such a very nice person, but he's also a very dedicated person. And he's still got that, you know, all business on the on the start of a game. But I think what's changed last year when he walked off that mound, I thought that was it. He's holding the ball. And I thought that's a souvenir. I thought that's it. You know, there's there's no way he's not going to be in the playoffs. And maybe who knows if he's got the health. But when I saw him take that ball, I go, is he taking a souvenir um, it wasn't like Russ Ortiz and the uh, Giants Angels where for some reason Dusty gave him a ball and said, uh, here you go. And then the Angels came back and won. But it was just an interesting moment. And I and I really think that perfect game uh, that he had in Minnesota for so many innings. And you could see the smile on the face and, and, and just the happiness that he was able to pitch again. And then to get that team strikeout to, to surpass Sutton, that was a great moment. And and I think Clayton realizes that at this age, you know, you're not going to last forever. He probably had the tunnel vision the first few years of his career trying to prove himself. Finally, the championship in 2020. Um, but you can see a sort of a different Kershaw as far as the family man. He's got the kids around the ballpark. He's got it in perspective. And he's savoring his health because who knew what was going to happen at the end of last year when he walked off that mound. Um, I had no idea if he was going to come back or not, and maybe he didn't either until he actually gave himself rest and tried to start over again. No, 100%. And, I mean, there, there's no denying it. Clayton's a first ballot Hall of Famer. You know, 22 is going to end up uh, up there with those other numbers you mentioned. Uh, but as Alicia mentioned, stick a pin in, in Fernando, and we'll we'll circle back to that. We here at the Bleed Los podcast uh, are campaigning to retire number 34 as well. Um, I... I you know, obviously, I, I'm also a little too young to to have seen that Fernando mania. You know, I'm I'm 30. I'm going to be 36 tomorrow. Uh, so by the time this comes out, I'll be 36. Um, but for for Latinos and for for the city of Los Angeles, for the Dodgers organization, the importance of Fernando is it's it's unexplainable. There's just no way to put it right. Last year was the 40th anniversary of Fernando mania. And, and even going through all of that, we learned more and more about how important that was. What do we got to do and who do we have to lobby to get 34 up there? Because aside from the Kofaxes of the world, you know, the Kershaws of the world, the Gil Hodges of the world, Fernando is just as a vital anchor of this organization as, as any, any other, if you will. 
Well, I think it's just up to management because you can say, okay, the Hall of Famers, that's the general rule. But anybody, you know, it's kind of like, and I was thinking about this with Fernando, depending on how old you are, sometimes it's hard to describe something to something somebody that was younger. You can describe Colfax, but unless you saw it. You can describe the Beatles, but unless you saw it. And it's the same. Now I'm going to be describing Fernando mania to you because you are so young. But for me, seeing Fernando, it was just as Scully would say, it was kind of like a religious experience. Because if you follow the movie Damn Yankees, the premise is this player suddenly drops from the sky and he's the greatest player of all time, Joe Hardy, lifting the, the Washington Senators over the Yankees. And it's just a, it's just a miracle. And think back to the tiebreaker in 1980, as far as Dodger fans, they're going to remember that one game when the Houston Astros defeated the Dodgers seven to one, Joe Negro defeats Dave Goltz. And a lot of people in retrospect say, why didn't they start Fernando? Why didn't they start Fernando? Because Fernando had 10 appearances and 18 innings, no earned runs, a two and oh record. And he thought, well, you know, but Tommy wanted to go with the sure thing and Goltz had had a good start. His previous start at San Francisco uh, leaving with the lead. So even though the season stats weren't that great, it wasn't that much of a stretch. Now, if Fernando starts that tiebreaker, there's no Fernando mania in 1981 because he either wins the tiebreaker and the secret's out, everybody knows who he is, or he loses the tiebreaker and everybody's wondering, why did you start the kid? So you had this unwrapped package opening day and because of injuries to Jerry Royce and Burt Hooten, suddenly it evolved and everybody was caught off guard. There was no hype going into the season. Hey, check out Fernando Valenzuela. This guy's going to be great. No way. Nobody saw this coming. It was just like a meteor. And so that was the seed to Fernando mania. And then it just got ridiculous. Five shutouts in his first eight starts. He's still the only pitcher since 1945, ever since Boo Ferris of the Boston Red Sox to win his first eight major league starts. So yes, there was a lot of hype. Yes, there was the U.S., the Mexico. When he goes to Montreal and then New York, it was craziness everywhere. But statistically, it hasn't been done since 1945. And along the way, you've got Mike Brito, the scout who discovered him. He's off to the side. You've got Jaime Hareen, who's in the spotlight. Jaime Hareen had been behind the microphone since 1959. And suddenly a lot of people are going, oh, they got Spanish broadcasts. Look at that. Jaime <laughs> Hareen. No, he'd been there since 59, but it was all these things. And meanwhile, Fernando was just as, as a cool customer. And it was like, for some reason, none of this phased him. And the thing that's amazing about Fernando mania, everybody worries about the strike and how, oh, isn't it terrible that the strike occurred? And I think the strike actually saved Fernando because Tommy had no problem with complete games. And I don't know if, if Fernando would have had enough gas in the summer if he had so many complete games. So it gave him a rest. It also gave the Dodgers, for the only time in their history, a free ticket to the playoffs in June. The strike is settled in, in August, but they already knew they were going to the playoffs so they could prepare. So yes, they got a break by winning the first half, a half game over the Reds. But then think about the playoffs. They're down 0-2 against the Astros. They come back. They're down 1-2 against the Expos. They come back. And then they win against the Yankees after falling behind two games to none. And you think about Fernando Mania and those first eight games, I think the biggest game was game three of the World Series against the Yankees because they're down two games to none. Fernando throws something like, you know, 160 pitches and he's wobbling and he doesn't, he's not as sharp. 
but he pitches a complete game, wins five to four. It's his only World Series appearance, puts the Dodgers back on the map as far as having a chance. They win the next two at home. They close it out at Yankee Stadium nine to two. Uh, so for anybody that wasn't there, anybody just, you know, wanting to Google Fernando and everything like that, the videos don't tell the story. The stats don't tell the story. If you were there, you knew you were seeing something magic. It was just, it, if you had the pleasure of being that age and to be able to see this, you, you just can't, it, it was just, it was, it wasn't a normal ball player. Uh, everybody else, yes, they have their stats and everything like that. Um, put it this way, when Fernando's still at the stadium, he still has that aura around him. This is Fernando. Even when he puts on his little disguises so he can sneak into the side of the ballpark and puts his ball cap on and, you know, tries to go, you know, incognito icon. It's like, yeah, Fernando, we know it's you. And But it's still, it's still magic to see Fernando. That's the amazing part of Fernando mania. If you saw it, you still feel the magic 40 plus years later. Yeah, and you know what? Uh, I learned all the stuff I learned about Fernando from my dad. You know, my dad obviously watched it, listened to Jaime, and to this day still tells the the lore, you know, of of, of that time. You know, like it, as a matter of fact, he used the uh, the religious experience uh, uh, terminology for it because you had to be there, right, in order to 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 ask it or to experience it, I should say. Um, I, I I wanted to ask you a hypothetical before I send it to Alicia, and then we we wrap it up with Juan, uh, Mark Langille, historian. By the way, I love historians because they're the only people that can tell you crazy stories that you would have to Google for about an hour and they just <laughs> tell them to you off the tip of their tongue. So uh, so that's and they also all have incredible names. Like one of my favorite historians is Michael Beschloss. Who, who has that name? Michael Beschloss. So and a historian, of course. So it's 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 great hearing these stories from you. But like I said, I want to give you a hypothetical because you're a historian. And you've seen so much. Justin Turner, who means so much to this organization now, found him kind of, you know, in the middle of nowhere, if you will, was struggling with the Mets, comes over to the Dodgers, flourishes, is easily the face, can, can be called the face of this franchise, is is an anchor in Los Angeles, is, is from here the whole bit. Is that a guy that you think that will end up being kind of like a Fernando where they probably should retire his number, you know, kind of enshrine him because he, he may not get into the hall of fame. It, it'll be, I think it'll be borderline, but obviously belongs in the Dodger hall of fame is a gem of the Dodgers organization as a whole. What, what's your kind of opinion on that? If you will. He could fall under the same category as a Garvey because Garvey was a late bloomer and Justin Turner came along and, you know, surpassed a lot of Garvey's records. The only reason why there was there was more rounds of the playoffs, but I think it's a great comparison because you're passionate about those who are older that saw Garvey play. They're going to be passionate about Garvey and those great teams of the 70s. And this, this latest, you know, string of nine consecutive playoff appearances, which, by the way, is unprecedented. Everybody takes for granted, oh, we're going to be in the playoffs and everything like that. Before the current ownership, the longest streak for either Brooklyn or Los Angeles Dodgers to make the postseason was two. So you think about the boys of summer, Colfax, Drysdale, the most they ever got into the playoffs was two in a row and suddenly nine in a row. It, it, it's it's just you, you can't fathom it. And Justin Turner has the, the longest streak of playoff appearances for any Dodger because Kershaw missed it last year. And so Turner... Uh, we're going to have a program for the season ticket customers, and I can't wait to ask him as far as what is that feeling being in the playoffs every single year? You think of an Ernie Banks that never was in the World Series. 
Justin Turner, I'm sure he has to make his vacation plans after October because he knows what he's going to be doing in October. No, fair. And I feel like he's, un, you know, everywhere else, you know, it's it, it's Justin Turner. But Justin Turner is that guy also kind of like a Max Muncy where you hate him if you're not a fan of the Dodgers or don't play for the Dodgers, right? And But that record, as far as the consistency with the playoffs, is still preposterous. That, that That's one of those where it just kind of shows you how good that dude is again, late bloomer is a great way of explaining it, but to be able to be that consistent and also on teams that are that good. Hey, all that's why that dude alone should just be enshrined because he's also kind of the, the epitome of Mr. Consistency as well. You talk about all his offense. And I still think when the Dodgers are down three games to one and the Braves run into that double play around third base and it's plays like that, that win championships. And he's just always been, just a consistent guy, and that's the amazing. That's the important thing I think for young people. Uh, they should, as far as to emulate and to be inspired by, because you know, so many times you can see a pro ball player the first, second, third year, it doesn't really happen for you, and you don't want to give up as long as you still have a chance. And there were so many times Turner could have given up, and he's with the Dodgers. Coletti brings him in as a non-roster player, and look what he does. Uh, he, you know, Juan Uribe and others are ahead of him. He just kept plugging away, and you just never know. A late bloomer, and that, that's, the, that's, that's the amazing thing about him because now you take for granted, oh, he's the cornerstone. Oh, we love the beard. We love his community presence and everything like that. Uh, 2014, he's the opening day second baseman when they open up in Australia. So he wasn't Justin Turner right away, but he eventually became Justin Turner, if that makes sense. No, yeah, 100%. Alicia, go ahead. Oh, you're on mute, Alicia. I know we're running out of time, so I'm just going to be really quick. You are the historian, so I'm going to ask you a historical question. What happened to the Kulaku? I'm just kidding. That's not the question. <laughs> 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 I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Um, but so we have uh, when we have guests on our podcast, we anoint them. You are now, Mark, a friend of the carne asada. Um, we've had a. Uh, guests like Alana Rizzo, who is a friend of the carne asada. And she does not, uh, I think we're along the, no, actually, I don't hate the wave. I want to talk about the wave. Where did the wave start officially? Because my dad thinks it's the Olympics. And the Dodger fans love it. Every game I go to, they're still doing the wave. I don't hate it. But we've kind of have this agreement, just like plugging along on this podcast, that the wave is okay. Love it or hate it, but don't do it when, say, the Dodgers are down or the rare cases we're losing. What What is your opinion on the wave, and where did it start, if you know? Well, supposedly it happened at the the uh, Seattle uh, Seattle if, at the University of Washington, as far as the, oh. the football. Now, whether or not that's true or not, that's one of the wars. And let me tell you something about the wave. After seeing all the cardboard cutouts in 2020, cardboard <laughs> cutouts cannot do waves. And so yeah. all the things that we took for granted that we weren't able to take a part of in 2020, you want the wave, you want cheering, you want booing, having stared at the face of those cardboard cutouts, wondering if it was ever going to go back to the way it used to be. Well, now it is. And that's something that I just love because I will never forget what it was like in the stands with those cardboard cutouts. And so um, 
it, I, I don't mind it at all. Uh, it just means people are having fun at the ballpark. And it also means a lot of people are at the ballpark because there's certain ballparks where you can't necessarily do the wave because right. if they're doing the wave, you wouldn't know they're doing the wave because you've only got 5,000 people in the right. stadium. And so <laughs> how cool is it when you do the wave in a packed ballpark? Right. We are so spoiled, aren't we? <laughs> Dodger fans are spoiled. Okay, uh, fun. I'm going to leave it to you. All right, Mark. Uh, you know, it's so funny. I, I know we're up against it, but my, I, I wanted to spend some time talking on Gil Hodges, and here's the thing. This poor guy waited as long as he waited to get, you know, his number retired to get into the Hall of Fame, and now we're going to give him, a, you know, short shrift on the show. We're going to totally just, you know, not give him his credit, but you know, for those of us, look, he, he was in the Brooklyn days. In the Brooklyn days, the names we always hear, Jackie Robinson, Duke Snyder, it always seems like Hodges is the forgotten guy. Like, nobody talks about Hodges. Why Why did it take this long for that guy to get into the Hall of Fame? He never played at Dodger Stadium as a Dodger. He was a hero at the Coliseum. He played two games with the expansion Mets in 1962 at Dodger Stadium, and then it becomes later, quickly in 63, the manager of the Washington Senators. The one thing that people don't realize, 1993, he was elected to the Hall of Fame by the Veterans Committee, technically, and Roy Campanella was on the committee, but he was too ill to attend. So he gave his proxy and voted for Hodges. And Ted Williams, the chair of the committee, said, we're not taking proxies. It's only for the people that are present. He fell one vote short, but technically... When they took the vote initially, he was elected to the Hall of Fame in 1993. And then just imagine trying to have another election, trying to get that. Uh, two months later, Campy passes away. So his ally on the Veterans Committee is gone. And like any election, it's as far as timing, who the other candidates are, the politics, as far as who you're going to vote for. So technically on paper, 30 years ago, he was elected to the Hall of Fame. But because Campy couldn't make the meeting, he had to wait all this time. I did not know that. Wow. So, this, again, this is another reason why you guys need to listen to the Bleed Lows podcast. Vin Scully is a kleptomaniac, and Ted Williams, it breaks my heart, is a red ass. That is just horrible. But, wow, I mean, I mean, he has his number there, retired now. Kike and Mike Sosha can also say now that their 14 has been retired. So uh, I, I know we're up against it, so we're going to end the show. But before we do that, we're going to do some little rapid-fire questions with you, Mark. Um, look, the guy, I think it's now been 63 years, or is it 64 years? Jaime Harrin, El Maestro. We had him on the show. This is his final year. I like to give the man his flowers. I don't think the guy gets enough. Now, in the Latino community, he is absolutely huge. And uh, I'd love to hear your thoughts on this, Mark, because a couple of people, the guests that we've had on, I know the numbers may not support it, but it feels like the majority of the fans in that stadium are Latinos. But why, why should Jaime Harin be remembered, I guess, is the one, the simplest way I can put it to you. Jaime Harin should not only be remembered, but to be celebrated because everything that he's seen, it's like the parallel of Ben Scully. And just the quiet dignity of him all these years. And I love the fact that everything that he's been able to enjoy, people forget 1990, a near fatal car accident in Vero Beach. And, you know, he, he almost didn't make it, had an 8% chance of surviving and made it. 
And that's the really important thing. I think after you survive something like that, he has the perspective. He has a wonderful family. He has just a wonderful outlook on life. And he, he's truly an inspiration. And he, just like Colfax, he's not the one to tell you how great he is. He's perfectly happy doing what he does. If you discover him, if you find out what a treasure he is, then that's great. But he's not going to run around and tell you, hey, I'm Jaime Harin. Uh, he's just had this this elegant dignity all these years, and it's just a, a just a pleasure to know him. So uh, I'm going to uh, deal with some trauma that I have on the show for our, our our listeners here. Our loyal listeners know that the 1985 NLCS is one that has stuck with me forever. Uh, it's my first memory as a Dodger fan, and it's the one that sticks with me more probably than the 88 winning the World Series or 2020. That 85 NLCS to me is heartbreaking because I think the Dodgers would have beaten the Royals in 85. Now, I know I have this illogical hatred towards Tom Needham fear. I know it was not Tom Needham's fault that he gave up a home run to Ozzie Smith and then gave up a home run to Jack Clark. He's lying, Mark. He blames. Tell me. Remind me, Mark. Why Tom Needham fear should not be in my fight club and I should just let it go. Because Steve Howe was not available because he had his problems and he was on the suspended list. And so basically, Need and Fear is take, picking up the workload. Rick Honeycutt was taken out of the rotation and he had shut out the, the uh, Cardinals twice that year. So already the staff is having to make changes. So Need and Fear is being the workhorse by default. And the interesting thing about Tom Needenfear, we had a 1981 reunion, I think 25th anniversary around 2006. And he's like, oh, God, I'm going to get it. I'm going to get it. He was cheered. He goes, I can't believe it. They're cheering me. And I, I think nobody blames Needenfear because you're the one that's out there. You want the ball. You're going to do the best you can. And the pregame strategy, according to some, was don't let Clark beat you. Well, they pitched to Clark. So what what, what do you do in that situation? But you've got Jack Clark. Just think about the trauma that I've had in my life. 1974, they lose to the A's. 77, 78. First, I've got to watch Reggie hit three homers in game six. Then I have to see him stick his hip out in 1978. 1980, they lose the playoff. 1981, I've got all this drama as far as they lose the first couple games of all these playoff series. So I've had – and just remember as a fan – when your team wins the championship, what do you do? You run out and get the merchandise and everything like that. But if they don't, if suddenly the Washington team in 2019 ambushes you <laughs> in the first round after 106 wins, or let's say the Phillies in 2008-2009 League Championship Series, they ruin Mannywood. You know, those the near misses is what you – nobody will ever remember 2020 as far as, as far as they're down three games to one against the, the Braves. Now, here's my championship gear, the hat, and everything like that. You always remember the near misses, just like the playoff losses. 1951, Bobby Thompson. 1962, they blow a 4-2 lead in the ninth inning against the Giants. 63, they win. Whoopee, let's celebrate. But you always remember, oh, he came so close. And in your case, you were obviously very young, very impressionable, and Jack Clark broke your heart. He did. He did. And Ozzy Smith hadn't hit a home run and he hits a home run. It's just ridiculous. But you're look, this is the perfect person. We're going to end the show, but this is a perfect person to ask this question. Look, the Dodgers have had a lot of success. I, I could be a Cleveland Indian a Guardians fan. Excuse me. 
you know, or one of those other fans of teams that have never won a World Series, right? I, I could be a fan, but I'm not. I'm, I, I, I'm a fan of the Dodgers. But I feel like, especially during this nine-year run that the Dodgers have had, they've had a lot of heartbreak. That 2017 is probably going to stick with me forever. But it made me feel like this is what the Brooklyn Dodger fan must have gone through all those years losing to the Yankees. I, I love you talk. I still know old people in New York who are Brooklyn Dodger fans. And when the Brooklyn Dodgers left, they're like, well, what am I going to do? I can't be a Yankee fan and I can't be a Mets fan. You know, I have, I have no team. I, I mean, the heartache that those Brooklyn Dodger fans went through is it just everything you just described right now, Mark? Look, when you sign up as a fan, you've got a roller coaster ride for six months. And because the Dodgers have been competitive every year this past decade, it's, it's just the ultimate reality. And that's the thing that drives you crazy because everything else, you can touch your smartphone, you can Google it, but you have absolutely no idea what's going to happen. You have no idea what's going to happen in the playoffs. And because you care so much, it drives you crazy. And I will admit, the first two rounds of the playoffs – it's, it's impossible to watch because it, everything goes in my head, you know, like, oh, God, this is like 1920. This is like 1943. This is, and it just drives you crazy. If we get to the World Series, I tell the younger employees, just enjoy it. You don't know what's going to happen. But the first two rounds of the playoffs, it's just torture for me because there's so much at stake. And I think that's actually the joy of baseball because we don't know what's going to happen. And you have to have heartbreaks like Jack Clark if you're going to love that Kike Hernandez game seven versus the Braves home run or Kirk Gibson or Oral Hershiser or anything. You have to have the ups and the downs. And just think, too, what if we won five championships in a row? You'd be bored. You'd go, well, yeah. I wasn't the sweep this year. I don't like <laughs> the design of the trophy. Why do they have to have the parade go through there? You know, every, you'd always find something to complain about. You know, what's that champagne for? You know, everything like that. Um, so you just really, you just have to appreciate the fact that all these games mean so much. We care so much and you just have to just be grateful for, um, just think of that poor Brooklyn Dodger fan, the early days, yeah. 1916, 1920. And then here we go. 41, 47, 49, 52, 53. Yeah. They win it in 55, but they lose again in 56 and they're out of town by 58. So, you know, and then we're spoiled right off the bat in Los Angeles, finished seventh in 58, and then they win the championship in 59. So Dodger fans in L.A. really didn't have to suffer until they blew the pennant in 1962 against the Giants. They got a free pass with the White Sox beating them, but they didn't have to go through what Brooklyn went through. But we went through that after Kirk Gibson's home run. They don't win another and, and Oral wins game five at Oakland. They don't win another playoff game until Lima time in the uh, 2004 playoffs. They're swept in 95 and swept in 96. So you've got this dynasty going on right now. But don't forget, from 1989 until 2004, they didn't win a playoff game. You hear that, Dodger fans? So, yes, we lost the season series to the Pirates of Pittsburgh and to the Phillies of Philadelphia. The state of Pennsylvania is horrible to us and to the whole country. But – we just have to learn to enjoy it and appreciate it. Okay, Mark, we're going to end the show the way we always end all our shows. I, I, you, I mean, you grew up in Pasadena or uh, lifelong South Pasadena. Okay. All right, so you're you're a native Angelino, so we need to know 
you know, on the Bleedos podcast, we're about the Dodgers, we're about LA culture, and we're about taco culture. So what is your favorite taco and where do you go in the city to get that taco? It's right around the corner, Casados. Okay. Uh, what kind of taco do you get there? Whatever that whatever usually it's whoever I'm with. It's I'll I'll have anything. I'll just, you know, pour the sauce on it and it's always it's always a treat. So it's not like I have to have a go-to taco. If I'm there, it's a special occasion. So you you don't have a preference, carne asada, you're like no, no meat, it doesn't matter. No, if I'm hungry, the preference is to go there. There's no uh, <laughs> just give me the taco quick and and uh uh, I will eat it quickly, but it's not. I'll, I'll eat anything there because it's it's so good. But um, it's a special occasion. But it's not. I, I don't have a particular one I have to have. Uh, I can have anything there because ev everything there is so good. Yeah. Okay, corn or flour tortillas? Either one. Either one. I, I'm wow. not. I'm not particular. This is, this is a man who's going to live forever. Nothing faces him. Nothing like nothing is life I or death with it. him. And you yeah. know why he's going to live forever? Because he doesn't have an illogical beef with Tom Needenfewer. But you are still <laughs> let, let me tell you something. Ozzy Smith and Jack Clark. Ozzy Smith had not hit a home run. Yeah. All right. So, so, here, so here, here, put, let, let, just NBC so, put the graphic up two seconds before he hit the homer. Has yes. never hit a homer. There it goes. Yeah. Exactly. exactly. Now, now, if anything, it, 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 and this is me being devil's advocate, right? If anything, Ozzy Smith should be in your fight club and not Tom Needenfewer. Well, you know, I got my cataracts done by a Harvard-trained uh, ophthalmologist, and his favorite player was Ozzie Smith. So I'm laying there on the table, and we're actually talking about, uh, you know, those home runs. And right before he's about to carve up my eyes, we're reliving the 85. So I'm glad in that case that his guy did well, and I, you know, and he was the hero because it put Dr. Hugo Sue of Pasadena UCLA Health in a good mood before he fixed these eyes. Right. Because if it would have been Dr. Juan Ramirez, that you you wouldn't be able to see. He might have had so. a problem. So we go. Look, let me tell you, you want to know why the Jack Clark hurts me more? Right. It's because, you know, you know me and my love for Pedro Guerrero. Yeah. Seeing Guerrero's reaction when he just throws the glove on the ground, it just hurts me. I, <laughs> I felt bad for Petey. I was just like, how could you do that to Petey? Petey's the greatest. Do you, know do, you remember, do you remember who our batting coach was in the early 2000s? Yeah, Jack Clark, which I don't understand. How did he get hired, Mark? How did that happen? Well, sort of. And here's the great thing. Jack Clark, you know, true to him because of the rivalry and how he, quote, hated the Dodgers, he'd always try to wear his warm-up jacket so the, the, the jersey wouldn't show. So how crazy was that, having a batting coach who didn't want his jersey to show? Because technically, you know, he did say, yeah, they hired me and everything like that. But he didn't go out of his way to show the Dodger jersey because he still had in the back of his mind, you know, as a player, I don't want to be showing off that Dodger jersey. I'll be the batting coach. And he really helped out Sean Green. But if you look at old pictures of Jack Clark, usually he's wearing the uh, the the uh, anonymous warm up jacket uh, to cover the script. Yeah, See what you? a jerk. No wonder we sucked that yeah. year. I, he, he still talks. He still talks crap on the Dodgers. I don't know why they hired him. Okay, before, I promise we're going to let you go. <laughs> the Tommy Lasorda and Sandy Koufax thing, is there any truth to that? Truth to the fact that Sandy... That's why, why Sandy left the Dodgers and didn't come back until McCourt brought him back? Oh, no, I don't, I don't think so at all. I don't think okay. Tommy had anything to do with that. Ta Sandy bumped Tommy off the roster... Um, but whatever Sandy's decision made for Sandy to take a break for a while, um, I don't think it had anything to do with uh, with Tommy because, you know, that's a fraternity that goes back to the Brooklyn days. And, you know, you see the old photos of those two. 
uh, as far as just they knew what it was like to be a player and both struggling in 54 and 55. So they've known each other a very long time. And, and whatever break, uh, whatever break Sandy had from the organization, I've not heard that it was from Tommy. Okay, cool. Mark Langeal, uh, Los Angeles Dodgers historian. Uh, where can the people find you if they want to find you? And also uh, find your books. Where can they find your books that you've authored? Well, you know, the easiest thing to do, my email address, markl at ladodgers.com, because I read social media kind of like a newspaper. I'm not like the crazy poster or anything like that. It's just more for information. Um, But if anybody has any interest, there's six different titles. Just just Google it. Contact me at the stadium. I'm always happy to answer questions. Uh, And I'm always happy to hear from fans because fans have such wonderful stories. They also have great artifacts at home, and sometimes they'll say, Hey, have you ever seen this picture? Have you ever seen this? Have you ever seen that? And many times you haven't. You're always learning about uh, new Dodger mementos or stories, uh, just like the Shanahan family in that 1973 broadcast. It's something new every day. Yeah, 100%. Hit him up. Uh, We would love to have you back on because one thing I wanted to get into, but obviously we didn't have time, is to discuss Dodger Town. Uh, you know, the lore of Dodger Town and, and the importance of that as well for this organization and so much more. But on, on that note, uh, got to pay some bills and then we'll set everyone loose. Uh, this episode was presented by Bet Online. BetOnline.ag is the website. Go to that website, use your mobile device, sign up today to receive your 50% welcome bonus on your first deposit and just use our promo code BELIEVE, which is B L E A V to get that bonus and get into the action. You got the NBA finals happening. The Stanley cup finals are happening. Baseball's happening. There's combat sports. Clearly Juan's going to get in on that because he wants to fist fight Tom Needenfuhr. So throw your futures out on that. And uh, the NFL futures and so much more. They're the best for all that. So check them out. Huge thanks to them for presenting this week's episode of the podcast for myself, Juan, Alicia del Valle, the babyface gimmick of the sky and Mark Langeal. Thank you guys so much, and we will catch you down the road. Go Dodgers. Thank you for listening to this week's episode. Please subscribe and leave a review to the Bleed Lows Podcast. The Bleed Lows Podcast is a Dodgers Beat production. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.